0: Welcome to China Insider, a podcast from Hassan Institute's China Center.
1: It's Tuesday, January 9th, and we have three topics this week. The first is Miles' take on the upcoming Taiwanese election. Second, we discuss the PRC's continued economic issues, with its largest shadow bank having declared bankruptcy this past Friday. And third, we get Miles predictions on China heading into the new year. Miles, how are you? Very good, Shan. Welcome back. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, Wonderful. So let's just jump right in. So, Miles, we're now less than a week away from the election in Taiwan. Um, Every election in democracy is consequential, but looking down the barrel of PRC aggression, it's all the more so. So uh, what are your thoughts and what are you watching for now that we're so close?
0: Well, every election in Taiwan uh, is consequential in light of the um, existence of the tensions between Taiwan and mainland China, the communist China. We don't know exactly how it's going to uh, turn out because the three-way race is very, very close. But uh, we can discuss some of the very important new developments uh, coming out of this uh, election cycle, which is different from four years ago or eight years ago. One of the very important development coming out of this uh, intense campaigning and presidential debates is the redefinition of the agency of the PRC-ROC tensions. That is, who is actually responsible for the tensions uh, between um, Communist China and Taiwan? Well, running for presidency, our three candidates represent— uh, the KMT, which is the largest uh, opposition, uh, DPP, which is the uh, the uh, incumbent, and of course there's a TPP, that Taiwan People's Party, represented by the former mayor of Taipei, uh, Mr. Ko. Now, the KMT on this particular issue, who is responsible for the tensions for Taiwan's security uh, crisis? The uh, KMT blames the DPP, the incumbent for causing the tensions, saying they are just too, too democratic, you know, too uh, empathetic about the Taiwan's uh, independence. The DPP, on the other hand, counters that uh, the CCP is the ultimate culprit for the tensions, not the DPP. Uh, and the, the running uh, candidate for presidency of DPP, uh, Mr. Uh, Lai Qingda, uh, William Lai, who is the incumbent vice president, said in one of the uh, uh, three debates uh, very uh, uh, famously that, in fact, in the eyes of the CCP, of the Chinese Communist Party, the fact that all three candidates are taking part in this truly democratic, free, and open election is pro-independence. The voters will have to decide on that. This is a very very important articulation of this uh, uh, key debate. The second very important uh, uh, development is that both uh, KMT, TPP, and the, the third-party candidate TPP uh, all agree that the future of Taiwan will be determined by the Taiwanese voters, and this is very important because uh, very uh, keen on people's mind in Taiwan is the the possibility that one of the three parties may engage in intense negotiation with the Chinese Communist Party about the future of Taiwan. And now, all three parties agree that the future of Taiwan cannot be negotiated away uh, in the back, door, back room with the, with Beijing, but they will be, de- be determined by the Taiwanese voters. The third thing, which I think is probably the most important, is uh, um, convergence of uh, views on what exactly is the status quo. The most significant reality in taiwan and in taiwan's political landscape is that overwhelming majority of people in taiwan somewhere close to 90 percent are for status quo in other words in the past there were only two options so the kmt is widely labeled as pro-unification with china the dpp has been known and has been charged by China mostly as the uh, pro-independence. So it's unification and independence. This fight has been going on for decades. But now, this year, this sort of dichotomy between unification and independence has become less and less meaningful uh, because uh, there is a critical third factor, that is status quo. So all three parties agree status quo is very important. And they're all endeavoring to maintain that. Now the question is, what is status quo? So you have several options, right? One definition is that, well, status quo means that no unification with the PRC. Another one is, uh, uh, well, no new declaration of independence. So but the third option is that, well, status quo is, in fact, independence. On this particular uh, issue, that the the DPP has a very clear answer, the KMT cannot really elaborate on this. Uh, uh, that is, uh, the status quo is independence. So um, I think the KMT is is struggling with that point. And the one final uh, aspect of this: uh, anybody who has been observing the Taiwanese election and will be uh, in awe of the institutional upgrade and advanced. Uh, sort of uh, nature of Taiwanese uh, uh, voting process there are basically very different from the United States uh, which demonstrate to the point that Taiwan is a mature and a very um, fair and open election they have uh, basically four particular measures that we don't have Uh, one is that in order to maximize voter participation all Taiwanese elections particularly presidential elections will take place on Saturdays not Tuesdays as in the United States. So that will basically means that Saturday is the off day. Most people don't work, so and people uh, participate more fully and therefore more democratic. Another part is that in order to guarantee fairness, and there is a particular uh, clause in the Taiwanese uh, presidential election law that says that uh, no polling results will be allowed to publish uh, 10 days before the voting day. This is uh, to prevent sort of spending and, uh, um, and uh, inf- uh, opinion inference. And uh, the third aspect is in order to prevent fraud, uh, the election law in Taiwan says that there shall be no mail-in voting. All voting will take place uh, in person and the results will be announced uh, uh, immediately after the election. Uh, this is very important. And finally, I will say the Taiwanese election is very, very fascinating because uh, it is supervised by a respected Central Election Commission. That Central Election Commission is very tiny, it is small, uh, but then the result will be certified by that small and tiny Central Election Commission and has basically been no uh, controversy. That basically means that Taiwanese uh, uh, voters' uh, confidence in a fairness and uh, uh, judiciousness of the Taiwanese uh, election processes. Uh,
1: I wanted to ask you a a recent Reuters article by uh, Michael Martina and David Brunstrom. It began by saying, Taiwan's election next week poses challenges for Washington no matter who wins. Uh, Their argument being that the DPP win will exas- could exacerbate tension with China, um, while a KMT win you know, might raise awkward questions about the island's defense policies. Do you agree with this characterization, or do you think that there's a clear sort of preference from Washington's perspective?
0: No, again, I mean, that's uh, basically is an argument uh, uh, without nuance and uh, without really sort of uh, pay attention to some of the new developments that I just mentioned. Uh, For example, if uh, the the article uh, supposes that if DPP, the incumbency wins, and therefore will cause uh, further attention, that again, that falls into the trap of uh, who is actually to blame uh, for the attention. I mean, they blame the DPP, I mean, they blame victims, right? So the real culprit causing attention actually is the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, that's why it's it's not going to be. Unfortunately, some uh, pretty much like, you know, um, uh, deluded. uh, Think tank policy makers in Washington D.C. are making the same argument. It's kind of silly, as exemplified in the recent uh, uh, publication of the article in the uh, magazine Foreign Affairs. So that has been widely rebutted and, and de- uh, debunked. So I don't think that's what's going to be happen. The KMT obviously is a biggest opposition, but again, KMT agree with DPP on many things. There's more agreement even though they don't openly sort of admit the disagreement between KMT and DPP. Because, for example, the KMT actually agree very clearly that they do not endorse the one country, two systems formula. And KMT also agree the future of Taiwan will be determined by the Taiwanese voters. So there's no security dilemma here of any significance a portion here. So I, I, I really don't buy that argument uh, that
1: uh, is so obsolete and uh, without really sort of a, a foresight. No, that certainly makes sense. And I guess just as a last question, from a US perspective, uh, the Taiwanese election is almost entirely about China. And you know, there, there might be a tendency to forget about their domestic concerns, everyday, you know, kitchen table issues. Is this the case from the Taiwanese perspective? I mean, is it like to what degree does the China question drive voters? Or I mean, is it the case that they're kind of just numb to the the pressure they face from China and are more focused on sort of everyday issues than we might think?
0: Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I mean, I think it's a fair question in the early stage of this presidential campaign all of the candidates uh, tend to focus more on the bread and butter issues in other words, yeah. domestic economic performance and the future of Taiwanese technology those kind of issues but gradually the uh, particular oppositions against the incumbency uh, they're running out of issues because that become a little bit you know uh, less important to them because Taiwanese economy is doing very well I mean Taiwanese uh, um, overall, there are some mistakes, but I think the Taiwanese economy has been sort of a, a, a very robust. Uh, for example, Taiwanese GDP uh, per capita is uh, uh, the highest in East Asia, surpassing Japan and in South Korea, which is remarkable. But then, in the middle course of the campaign and the later part of the campaign. The issue was shifted to security and not basically mainland China. I think opposition KMT uses China's military threat, this pledge, to use force to take over Taiwan as a sort of you know uh, a campaign issue to scare the voters, and uh, and they uh, label DPP uh, too cantankerous too aggressive. And DPP say, hey, listen, you know, um, uh, what do we do? What we say? <laughs> if if CCP doesn't like you, they're going to you, uh, threaten you with force. So that's basically, you know, in the second part. And currently, I think the the issue of dealing with the mainland China has become
1: dominant. Now, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, so for our next topic, the prominent Chinese shadow bank, Zhangji, filed for bankruptcy this past weekend. Uh, this followed an investigation into the firm launched in November of 2023 for suspected illegal crimes. Miles, can you give us some background here? What role does this firm play in the Chinese financial sector, and how significant is this development? Oh, This is very
0: significant. Uh, Zhongzi is the uh, largest non-state lending firm. And China's basic development model uh, depends on a massive infusion of capital in uh, infrastructure construction, housing, for example, uh, those things. And by normal standard, those loans would never have been given up because there is no collateral, there is no sort of financial due diligence. So uh, the Chinese uh, state banks uh, boast mostly just give all the money to all these uh, uh, development projects. But then that is not even enough. So there is a lot of uh, so-called uh, private or non-state uh, lending uh, wealth management firms. Jones is the largest. Now I have to qualify immediately though that uh, because China is communist country, there is really no private financial institution or private economy per se, and the so-called non-state factor uh, sectors in Chinese economy, they all uh, share very intricate connection with Chinese Communist Party bureaucracy. For example, Zhongzhi was created by this uh, guy uh, from uh, China's Northeast, and uh, he, uh, he became very prominent because uh, uh, he has a brother uh, who uh, was the general secretary and the general manager of the Chinese Communist Party's gigantic 100% percent on owned sovereign fund, Central Foreign Exchange Investment Company, also known as Hui Jin in Chinese. So, and he had this uh, connection. So the, uh, the Zongzi's uh, founder and a longtime president and CEO was a gentleman by the name of uh, Xie Zikun. And uh, he, f- he suddenly died two years ago at age 60, which is very mysterious. Ever since this uh, financial giant is in trouble, because uh, Xi Jinping realized that he would like to take charge of China's uh, economic and particularly financial decision-making. And that's why he went after uh, this uh, non-state uh, sector companies uh, such as Zhongzhi. And he wanted Zhongzhi to basically to uh, give up his, his money and to support china's uh, uh finance but basically you know try to uh, rob this uh this uh particularly uh, important uh, bank to support china's finances which is in trouble due to the collapse of the china's real estate uh, empire uh so uh but jones said listen you know um uh, i really would like to help you um, but i myself was in trouble because the entire uh lending and loaning industry in china is like a ponzi scheme so i'm actually in fact um, uh, uh, is going to default um so that's that's a problem and now finally this uh, financial giant is, is declaring bankruptcy uh, last week and this is going to be a very very big deal in china and similar financial empires in china with a very strong a bureaucratic uh, political connections were also in trouble. For example, the CEO of the behemoth Anbang Insurance, Wu Xiaohui, is now serving 18 years in uh, jail term in China. Uh, Wu Xiaohui was the grandson-in-law of a, a former Chinese dictator Deng Xiaoping. I mean, he's now in trouble. Uh, Xiao Jianhua, who is the, uh, the CEO of the Mintian Financial Empire, the Tomorrow Financial Group, also has deep tie with the uh, Chinese Party Bureau economy, uh, standing committee member. And he is now um, in jail, th- serving a 13-year term. And this guy, Xiao Jianhua, is even more bizarre. He was kidnapped in the peninsula hotel in Hong Kong uh, by Chinese agent. And he went back to China for trial because he refused to, to cooperate with China uh, by giving up, basically, his private uh, uh, wealth management firm. And this is all... A uh, very, very um, um, uh, Chinese style. The Chinese currency can let you rise, but can also squeeze you to death if you cannot help a ton of crisis. And this is uh, uh, Zhongzhi's bankruptcy is a perfect example.
1: It, this just seems like a recurring trend with, with China's financial ills, that, that it, it, it is the party sticking its hand in economic activity, trying to get a piece or trying to sort of guide companies To what degree is the Chinese Communist Party creating economic problems for itself, or is there merit to some of these investigations, and they do need to kind of rein in a corrupt economic sector?
0: Many people seem to suggest that uh, the reason why uh, Xi Jinping is going after all uh, these non-state financial firms is because China does not have money. It's not that simple. Yes, China uh, does not have enough money, but also uh, simultaneously, China has a lot of money. Uh, China... uh, is the world's uh, richest government. It has a, a foreign currency re, uh, reserve of over $3 trillion, the largest of any government in uh, in the world. So Chinese Communist Party is extraordinarily rich. The problem is a lot of people in China are not rich. Uh, even though government is very rich, wealthy, they can build all kinds of skyscrapers in China, uh, sponsored by the government, uh, but the the people's income is pretty pretty low, right? Uh, we talk about this on this program many uh, many times uh, many times. Uh, the income per capita in China is among the lowest in the world. Forty percent of the people in China, in other words, about over six hundred million people in China, are making less than five dollars a day. Ninety six percent. Of the people in China, now in it's 1.3 billion people in China. Make under 23 dollars a day. This is according to uh, China International Capital Corporation Limited, uh, Zhongjin's uh, uh, statistical analysis. But then people might ask, how did the China spend money? The Communist Party has a lot of money. Where did the money go? Obviously, not uh, spending on people. In fact, China's money was spending on the following uh, uh, major uh, uh, projects. Number one, uh, China has to spend a lot of money to maintain the world's largest police state, uh, surveillance system, and uh, uh, enormous amount of uh, security uh, forces to guard against the dissidents, uh, guard against uh, foreign spies, for example. So China's domestic political stability uh, budget Is larger than its defense budget, which is the second largest in the world. Just think about that. Another way of China uh, spend money is uh, global influence peddling projects, uh, particularly uh, build and road initiative projects. Uh, Most of them uh, were not really based upon market mechanism; mostly based upon Mm -hmm. geopolitical. Purposes, so that's why the BRI project uh, uh, are not doing really well right now. But it's very costly for China. Thirdly, of course, China spends a lot of money um, on its military. Uh, China's military right now is uh, doing very well, and uh, so that's very costly. Lastly, and this is uh, not to be ignored, that China's money, government money, is basically eroded, taken away by enormous corruption entire Chinese society from top to the bottom. Officials, over 100 million strong Chinese Communist Party members, uh, they control the, the major sinews of the society. Those officials spend enormous amount of money on banquets, right? They're expensive pressure events. And uh, to be honest with you, and there was an enormous amount of embezzlement by officials. About half of the local government budgets in all of China, goes to official extravaganza, mostly lavish banquets, and then, of course, uh, recently in last week, there is a report about the corruption within the Chinese uh, uh, People's Liberation Army. That is uh, particularly the China's strategic force, uh, uh, the PLA rocket force is cutting corners in its long-range missile development, (laughs) putting a lot of uh, water in there in lieu of liquid fuel in these rockets. And this is basically nothing new if you live in the Chinese political environment, uh, because this happened all the time, Uh, but then it's shocking to the outside world. that the corruption is really stupefying in China. That's where Chinese money is spent on, but instead of uh, uh, spending on governance, on its people, the Chinese Communist Party has its own agenda.
1: For our last question, I, I thought we'd go a bit broader. Now that we're at the beginning of 2024, Miles, uh, it seems like it's a good time to ask you, you know, what are your thoughts and predictions heading into the new year? Do you have any sort of general trends you anticipate or, or, or things uh, with respect to China?
0: Well, many of the things that have been going on in China's global uh, uh, outreach, uh, uh are going on, but, in a sort of a, but the, you can see there's some new patterns emerging. Let's just talk about BRICS, for example. The BRICS is the um, uh, initially started as a as a trade group, but now it's becoming more political and geopolitical. Right? China wants to be leader of that. BRICS stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Um, but now it's expanding. Uh, but now you know um, that expansion has uh, faced some headwinds, uh, starting with the new year. Right? Very official important part of the uh, BRICS uh, uh, project is the. Um, is Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka has been uh, heavily invested by the Chinese uh, for its strategic uh, political location, particularly the maritime ports. Uh, but uh, Sri Lanka uh, is now under enormous pressure by one of the BRICS members, uh, that is India. So India put a lot of pressure on Sri Lanka. So Sri Lanka now just issued a ban on all Chinese ships to dock in Sri Lanka ports for a year. This is enormous in development China was take, is taken by surprise. Not only that, in its uh, uh, recent BRICS uh, conference in South Africa, it's been announced that uh, uh, scores of countries uh, want to join. But one of the most important countries, Argentina, uh, has a new election and it has a different uh, leadership. Team. So Argentina has openly announced that the, uh, it has changed his mind. So Breno Honoris is going to basically uh, decline uh, the invitation to join um, BRIC. So it's a, it's a, it's a problem. But then, of course, uh, starting with the new year of 2024, you see this uh, uh, rapid halt of international investments going to China, causing panics. Most of the uh, firms. Uh, in uh, major firms in, in the world are exiting China. So decoupling is is, um, is happening. Uh, you might also see uh, the uh, the continuation of the Biden administration's uh, uh, trade policy uh, on China. Uh, that has been sort of started, that was started in the Trump administration. The U.S. Uh, has decided to continue with the trade tariffs uh, uh, on Chinese uh, imports, and it's gonna stay. Um, all sanctions on Chinese uh, companies and entities that has uh, uh, human rights violations or uh, violation of uh, US law, sanction regimes, uh, remain unchanged. So um, there's there's even more sanctions added on a monthly basis. On war in Ukraine and Gaza, obviously this is major uh, developments in the world. But China's role uh, of, of fake neutrality has been increasingly exposed as fake because uh, we have discovered that China, even though there is uh, no direct assistance of lethal weapons to either Russia or uh, Hamas, but they have been uh, playing a very important role. China has been playing very important role in buttressing the economic uh, system of Russia, for example. China has uh, uh, shipped enormous amount of uh, dual-use uh, equipment, trucks, uh, cars, automobile uh, uh, cars, and aircraft, and drones, for example, I mean, to Russia uh, for, uh, to support Russia's uh, uh, war machine, and also, of course, buying Russia oil um, in violation of international sanction regimes. Now, we just saw the report last week the Israelis have discovered huge cache of Chinese-made weapons. Uh, We don't know whether those were directly shipped by China, or uh, China sends weapons to Hamas by a third party, but the fact that that the Chinese uh, are supporting Hamas directly or indirectly. So that's becoming a a very, very um, new phenomenon. The most uh, um, obvious one, of course, is the intensification of China's aggression in the South China Sea and Taiwan Strait, uh, Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. So Chinese naval forces have been causing trouble. Um, You can read that uh, uh, in international uh, news reporting. So all you know, I think emerging out of all this new development in 2024, we can see two major narratives. Uh, This will emerge as dominant, I predict, for 2024. That is number one, China has always tried to portray the United States as its only enemy. And that narrative is not going to work because uh, it's increasingly clear that in 2024, the issue of the world is not China versus the United States. It's, rather, it's going to be China versus the rest of the world. Number two, uh, I think you know the new trend in 2024 is that China will be further isolated internationally. So I'll just stop right there.
1: Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Miles, thanks so much. Uh, Look forward to doing this again next week. All right. Thank you for having me and uh, look forward to further discussion next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of China Insider. If you enjoy the show, please share with your friends and colleagues. And for our Chinese language audience, be sure to come back and check out our monthly Chinese language episodes, which are released on the same channel as well as the Hudson Institute YouTube channel. For more research and analysis from the China Center, be sure to find Miles on X and then head on over to Hudson.org, where you can read and watch more on these and other pressing issues around the globe. Finally, please review and subscribe wherever you are listening from to help grow the show. From all of us at China Insider, we'll see you next week.